Chapter 4, Part 14 of the Works of Robert G. Ingersoll, Volume 10. Ingersoll's Closing Address to the Jury in the Second Star Root Trial. Part 14 of 24. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information, or to volunteer, please contact LibriVox.org. Read by William Jones. Part 14. Now, gentlemen, I wish to call your attention to a few points made by Colonel Bliss. You must remember that Colonel Bliss has been very highly complimented by his associates as a kind of peripatetic index of this case, an encyclopedia of all the papers, that he never makes a mistake, that he recollects amounts with absolute certainty, and that he is infallible. Keeping all these things in your mind, I wish to call your attention to some statements that he has made. First of all, I will refer to a little of his philosophy, or law, and that is that in every affidavit you should state not the number necessary on the then schedule, but the actual number, and that there could be no doubt about the number of men and horses used at the time when an affidavit was made, and that consequently anybody making an affidavit should put in the number then actually used. Well, let us see how that will work. He says the oaths are false because they do not state the actual number of men and horses employed in carrying the mail at the time they were made. He says that the person making the affidavit swore to the number actually employed, and where that number was not employed, that fact of itself shows the affidavits to be false. I say that is not the law. The law calls for the number necessary, not the number actually employed. Let me show you how easy it would be to cheat the government on the principle laid down by the gentleman. I will show you how infinitely silly that is. Let me illustrate. Here is a route 150 miles long once a week. You know it is possible for one man and one horse for a little while to carry that mail and to go 150 miles one way and then 150 miles the other, making 300 miles in a week. You can take a magnificent horse and a good, stout, tough man, and you can do it. The court interjects, or a boy, Mr. Ingersoll, or a stout, tough boy. The court, a boy would be best. Mr. Ingersoll, you do not need any boy, just one man and one horse will answer. The man can ride the horse 150 miles in three days, and then ride 150 miles back the next three days. All you have to swear to according to Mr. Bliss, is the number actually used. And so you would come in and swear to two on this route. Now, when you are making an affidavit as to the number to be used on a schedule to be made, you cannot swear to the number actually in use, because they are not then in use. You have to swear to the number necessary. You have to swear to the number required. Now see, on a mail route 150 miles long, I would only want a good smart horse and one good active man or boy. I would not need to carry it more than one week, because I could make the affidavit for that week, and then the question would be how many men and horses would be required for a daily mail on the same route. I would put in a reasonable number, and the difference between the number then actually used and the reasonable number 
to use would be the standard by which to fix my pay. If you take the man and horse actually used, and then take the number that would reasonably be used, you would make a difference of a thousand percent. And yet, that is the doctrine laid down here to guide us as to these affidavits. Let me tell you what the law is. It does not make any difference what you are really using at the time. You must swear to the number that would be reasonably necessary to carry the mill on the then schedule. You must swear to the number that would be reasonably necessary to carry the mail on the proposed schedule. In the first place, if you put a great deal of work on a man and horse, you must put the same proportion on man and horse on the second schedule. If you are easy on man and horse in the first schedule, you must be easy on man and horse in the second. The only object, gentlemen, is to keep the proportion, because you are to be paid according to the number of men and horses used. Now, they say it would be necessary to go out there in order to tell how many men and horses would be necessary, and that the men who made these affidavits had never been on the routes. There was no need of being on the routes. I could give you the number required on any route two hundred or five hundred miles long. I could give you the number of men and horses reasonably required to carry the mail once, twice, three times, or seven times a week. And I could give you the number reasonably required to carry it at the rate of three miles an hour, or five miles an hour, or six miles an hour, without going there. I need not go there for the purpose of the affidavit. I can take it for granted that the road is good and level, and I can keep exactly the same proportion, and nobody can be defrauded. If you take the rule of Colonel Bliss, it would be the easiest thing on earth to defraud the government. That would be by taking the actual number in use, then taking the number necessary. On page 4761, Mr. Bliss makes the point that according to law, the second assistant postmaster general was not bound to allow according to the affidavits. He is right as to that. That is what Mr. Bliss says, and that is what John W. Dorsey swore he thought, and that is what Mr. Thomas J. Brady swore he did. He did not take the affidavit as a finality. Mr. Thomas J. Brady said that he took it for granted that the man, when he had made the affidavit, thought it was true, and that the man, when he made that affidavit, swore to the best of his knowledge and belief. But Thomas J. Brady never swore that he considered himself bound by the affidavit. On the contrary, he swore that he had a standard in his own mind, and that expedition was to cost thirty dollars a mile, or something of that kind. He went by that standard, and he gauged the affidavits by it. On page 4762, Mr. Bliss says that Brady admitted that he made no inquiry as to the truth of the affidavits, and that he accepted them as absolutely conclusive. On page 3434, Mr. Brady swears, I accepted their statement as conclusive so far as they knew. Brady also swears that he had his standard in his own mind, 
as I said before, and that he had an opinion of his own, and that by that standard and opinion he was governed. On page 4765, Mr. Bliss charges that Brady took the oath of Perkins on Route 38113 as the basis for the expedition. Mr. Turner's calculation on file shows that that affidavit was not the basis of the calculation. Mr. Bliss interjects, Your Honor, allow me to say that subsequently I stated to the court and to the jury distinctly that while the endorsement on the jacket recited the Perkins affidavit as being the one used, or the affidavit of the subcontractor, and while Mr. Brady transmitted to Congress that Perkins affidavit as the one upon which he acted, I still believed that the calculation showed that he used the other affidavit. Mr. Wilson interjects, he never made that statement until he made it during the progress of my argument when I was discussing that very point. Mr. Bliss, you are mistaken. Mr. Merrick, he made it while I was here, and I was not here during Mr. Wilson's argument. Mr. Ingersoll, if he has taken it back three times, that is enough. On page 4766, Mr. Bliss charges Brady with having two affidavits on the Pueblo and Greenhorn route from John W. Dorsey on the same day. Mr. Bliss. Mr. Hinkle called my attention to the fact that it was not the Greenhorn route, but the Pueblo and Rosita route, and I corrected it. Mr. Ingersoll. Good enough. I did not know about his taking it back. I was not here at the time. The fact was, however, that only one affidavit was ever filed, and that was an affidavit not by J. W. Dorsey, but by John R. Minor. Mr. Bliss. There were two on the Pueblo and Rosita route by John W. Dorsey. Mr. Ingersoll. We will come to them. You will get tired of them before we get through with them. On page 4767, Mr. Bliss refers to two affidavits. The first affidavit, the one not used, calls for three men and seven animals on the then schedule. That makes ten. On the proposed schedule of eighty hours, it called for nine men and twenty-seven animals. That makes thirty-six. The proportion, then, in this affidavit is 3.6, that is, the pay would be 3.6 times the original pay. In the second affidavit, five men and fifteen animals, twenty in all, are called for on the then schedule, and on the proposed schedule, twelve men and forty-two animals. The proportion there is 2.7, so that the affidavits leaving out the fractions, which are substantially the same, stand in this way. By the first, the contract price would have been multiplied by three, and the contractor would have had three times the original pay. And by the second, he would have had twice the original pay. Substituting an affidavit at only double the pay is called a fraud, because they withdrew an affidavit for treble the pay. That is what Mr. Bliss calls a fraud. He says still that it is a fraud. Now then, 
there were two affidavits and these two affidavits gentlemen mr bliss well knew were filed on different schedules the first affidavit was filed on a proposed schedule of eighty hours the second affidavit was filed on a proposed schedule of fifty hours the affidavit agreeing to carry the mail in fifty hours offered to do it at double the pay the affidavit on eighty hours wanted three times the pay or substantially that one was three point seven and the other was two point six just think of trying to make that a fraud on the government suppose they had filed a third affidavit and offered to carry it for nothing that would have been carrying a fraud to the extreme mr bliss your honor with reference to that i said expressly referring to these two affidavits it is not a question of proportion the question is whether the mere existence of those double affidavits did not give brady conclusive notice that the man who could make those affidavits was not a reliable man because no matter what the time was to which it was to be increased he stated the number necessary on the then schedule as so-and-so in one affidavit and in the other he stated the number differently i referred to it solely in that connection as the language shows on the page referred to mr ingersoll for instance a man writes you owe me five hundred dollars according to my books and writes the next day i have made a mistake you don't owe me anything mr bliss insist that the second letter would show that the man was not to be relied upon that is his idea of honesty if in the first letter he had written that i did not owe him anything and in the second letter i did that might be suspicious but when in the first he writes that i owe him and in the second that i do not there can be no suspicion as to his honesty in the first affidavit this man stated so much and in the second affidavit he put it one-third less that simply shows the man was paying attention to it and wanted to make an honest offer and yet everything in this case is poisoned with prejudice and suspicion another point mr bliss on page forty seven seventy says that on the pueblo and rosita route the number of trips was seven and that there was no increase upon that statement he bases an argument of fraud the argument is that there was no increase of trips now on page eight sixty six the order shows that in the first place there was one trip a week and there were six trips added that makes seven the original pay was three hundred and eighty eight dollars six trips were added and the value of the six trips which gave two thousand three hundred and twenty eight dollars of additional pay yet mr bliss tells you that there was no increase of trips as a matter of fact six trips were added and that was all that could be added mr bliss they were added coincidentally with the affidavit for expedition mr ingersoll you say they were not added i say they were mr bliss no sir 
I said at the time of the expedition there was no increase of trips, and the affidavit was based upon the seven trips. Mr. Ingersoll, I say that at the time there was an increase. Mr. Bliss, Your Honor, the point is this. I think I am right in saying that the increase of trips took place after the expedition. That is my recollection about it. I have not referred to the record. I think Colonel Ingersoll will find that is so. Mr. Ingersoll, we will see whether you are right. At the time the affidavit was made, there were just three trips, and afterward there were four trips added. Let us get it exactly right. I read from page 866. Date, July 8, 1879, State, Colorado, number of route 38134. Termini of route, Pueblo and Rosita. Length of route, 50 miles. Number of trips per week, one. Mr. Bliss, I see you are right. The trips were increased. Mr. Ingersoll, when anybody gives it up, I will stop. That is fair and that is honorable. Now the next point. On page 4771, Mr. Bliss says that the oath on the Tokerville and Adderville route was made for seven trips, although the order only gave them six trips. Of course, the inference being that they got as much pay for six trips as they were entitled to for seven trips. On page 3290, the original order was for one trip. Two trips were added. Look on page 949, and you will find that more trips were added. The second order increased four trips, and that made seven in all, and yet Mr. Bliss makes the statement there were only six. That is another mistake. Another point. On page 4772, Mr. Bliss states that Mr. Rodell spoke in his testimony about J.B.B. I have referred to that. I have referred before to the claim that Rodell was sustained by the testimony of Mr. Bissell. As a matter of fact, I do not remember that Mr. Rodell ever said one word in his testimony as to charging anything to J.B.B. Ninth point. At page 4778, Mr. Bliss states that Dorsey admitted in his letter to Anthony Joseph that the average rate for mail service on star routes was only $5 a mile. Mr. Dorsey says in his letter, no such thing. He says the average cost of horseback service. He does not use the language employed by Mr. Bliss the average rate for mail service on star routes. But he says the average cost of horseback service. That is a small point, but it shows how anxious the gentlemen are to get the thing fully as big as it is. Tenth point. On page 4783, Mr. Bliss says that Brady cut off $49,000 of increase on the Mineral Park and Pioche route on the 22nd of January, 1879, because the mail bills showed so little business. That is another mistake. The order cutting off the $49,000 
was made on the 22nd of January, 1880, not 1879. I mention this simply for the sake of accuracy. Eleventh point. At page 4785, Mr. Bliss says that the mail bills on the Silverton and Parrot City route show that Brady ran the service up from $745 to $14,900, and that the $14,900 was afterwards increased to $31,343.76. The record shows nothing of the kind. See pages 1894-1895. The original pay was $1,488, page 1854. The pay under the order of June 12, 1879, was $6,512.28, page 1855. No other increase was ever made. On page 1855 is the increase and in expedition being in all $14,808.63. The original pay was $1,488. A little change was made in the route that brought it up to $1,703.65. That, together with the expedition, makes a total of $16,512.28. And yet Mr. Bliss told you that it was $31,343.76. So that this encyclopedia of the papers made a mistake in one year of $14,831.48? For the whole contract time it would be a mistake of $45,000. And yet, strange as it may appear, that mistake was made against the defendants. Well, let us go on. Twelfth point. On page 4800, bottom line, Mr. Bliss says, They got so much in the way of offering petitions that Mr. Rodell, being told by Stephen W. Dorsey, upon this route from Pueblo to Greenhorn, to go to work and alter the petitions, inserted the words, and faster time. As to this petition, 7b, in which are the words and faster time, George Sears swears at page 829 and 830 that it is in the same condition now as when it was signed by him, he thinks. Thereupon, Mr. Bliss told you that he was mistaken in the paper. You must recollect these things. Mr. Bliss, are there not two petitions there altered? Mr. Ingersoll, that is on another route. There were 7B, 11B, and 12B. 7B was the written paper, and you introduced 11B and 12B. One said quicker time, and one said on faster schedule. And yet in the very next paragraph, they asked to have it run in eight hours. Mr. Rodell had to admit that he had put in the words without knowing what the petition called for, and that Dorsey instructed him to put them in. Mr. Bliss, Your Honor, in the very same paragraph, that very line where I said faster schedule, I called attention to the fact that the words were unnecessary. Mr. Ingersoll, 
that is not the only point. The point is, who wrote faster time? Mr. Bliss, that is not what I said. You have not given the whole sentence. Mr. Ingersoll, you cannot expect me to read your whole seven-day speech. That would be too much. This is what you said. They got so much in the way of altering petitions that Mr. Burdell, being told by Stephen W. Dorsey, upon this route from Pueblo to Greenhorn, to go to work and alter the petitions, inserted the word, and faster time. That is it exactly. Mr. Bliss then follows this. He inserted and faster schedule on quicker time, though there was not any necessity for doing that, because if they had gone further down, after some argument in the petition, to the request for expedition, they would have seen that there was no necessity for that little forgery up there. Mr. Ingersoll, that is a magnificent admission. There was no necessity for putting that in. I'm glad he admits that. He would ask you to believe that S.W. Dorsey, a man of intelligence and brains, would ask to have a petition forged, altered, interlined, without knowing what was in that petition. It will not do, gentlemen. Thirteenth point. At page 4810, Mr. Bliss says that McBean told Moore, in reference to Route 44140, Eugene City to Bridge Creek, that he could carry all the mail in his pocket. Now, as a matter of fact, Mr. McBean does not state any conversation with Moore covering this route. That was another mistake. No matter. Fourteenth point. At page 4814, Mr. Bliss, in speaking of the Ojo Caliente route, says the service, in fact, never was performed in fifty hours, that the evidence of that is conclusive. Well, now, let's see. Here is a jacket on page 3008, and that jacket shows that out of seventy-eight half-trips, expedition was lost on twenty-three and made on fifty-five. Yet Mr. Bliss tells you that it never was made. The jacket on page 3040 shows that expedition was lost on twelve half-trips and made on sixty-six. And yet Mr. Bliss says it was never made. The jacket on page 3056 shows that at the time they were carrying seven trips a week, 19 expeditions were lost out of 192 half-trips. And yet Mr. Bliss says the 50-hour schedule never was made. Another mistake. Mr. Bliss, that is long after the time I was referring to. As to the other point, I simply repeat it. Mr. Ingersoll, it will not help it to repeat it. For every expedition lost on this route or any other, the government did not pay. When the expedition was lost, the pay was deducted. When the expedition was made, the pay was given and not otherwise. You see, gentlemen, how they have endeavored to get the facts before you. What a struggle it has been over all these obstacles, lack of memory, the immensity of this record, and how they have climbed the Himalayas of difficulty, how they have gone over the Andes and Rocky Mountains of trouble to get at the facts. Fifteenth point. On page 4820, 
Mr. Bliss states that there could not have been legally allowed, on the evidence on the Dales route, on expedition over $4,144. As a matter of fact, the evidence does not cover the whole route as to the number of men and horses used. The government never proved the number of men and horses necessary to carry the mail over the whole route, but only a part. Mr. Kerr admits that the evidence is defective in that regard. When you have no standard, gentlemen, you cannot measure. Sixteenth point. On page 4820, Mr. Bliss, in speaking of the route from Eugene City to Bridge Creek, says that, taking the undisputed facts as they were, before and after the expedition, Brady could not legally have allowed more than $2,991.23. The evidence is, page 1343, that Wyckoff was a subcontractor from July 1878 to 1880. Powers first carried the mail in 1880. The route was increased and expedited in June 1879. Mr. Powers never carried it from the expedition. Mr. Wickoff was the only man who did that, and Mr. Wickoff was not called. Consequently, there was no evidence as to the number of men and horses used on either schedule. That left the gentleman without a standard and without a measure. Seventeenth point. On page 4820, Mr. Bliss says that on the Silverton and Parrot City route, the oath was made for seven trips a week on the present schedule, when it ought to have been two trips on the old schedule and seven trips for the new schedule. As there is no evidence as to the number of men and horses used on the old schedule, of course there is no evidence in this record to impeach that oath. You cannot find it. Eighteenth point. On page 4822, Mr. Bliss states that after the passage of the Act of April 7, 1880, there were two increases upon the White River route. The fact is, there was just one after the passage of that law. Of course, a little mistake like that does not make much difference in a case of this magnitude. Nineteenth point. On page 4824, Mr. Bliss states that the Raton was put on the Trinidad route April 24, 1879, page 1031. The office was embraced on the routes July 1, 1878. The first order in reference to it was made June 6, 1878. It was put on the route from July 1, 1878, increasing the distance 23 miles. Yet Mr. Bliss tells you that it was put on the route April 24, 1879. Mr. Bliss, is that not the date of the order? Mr. Ingersoll, it may have been the date of your order. Mr. Bliss, is not that the date of the order in the case? Mr. Ingersoll, I do not know anything about that. I give you the exact facts. Twentieth point. On page 4825, Mr. Bliss, in speaking of the Ho-Ho Caliente route, charges that by the order increasing the trips on this route in February 1881, there was paid from the Treasury illegally $2,011.46. Page 
as a matter of fact had we been paid for that entire quarter it would have amounted to seven thousand one hundred and thirty nine dollars and forty one cents the pay was not adjusted until april twenty second eighteen eighty one page seven thirty one the amount that was then paid was not seven thousand one hundred and thirty nine dollars and forty one cents but it was three thousand seven hundred and twenty seven dollars and twenty two cents it was not for the entire quarter but simply for the actual service rendered the quarterly pay for the preceding quarter before the expedition was three thousand three hundred and fifty eight dollars and twenty six cents showing that we received only for that quarter an excess on account of expedition of three hundred and sixty eight dollars and ninety six cents but he told you that we got illegally two thousand and eleven dollars and forty six cents that is a small matter twenty first point on page forty eight ninety seven mr bliss says in effect that dorsey undertook to state that he kept no books that he was doing a business amounting i think he says to six million dollars a year and yet he kept no books on the contrary dorsey swore that he did keep books on the contrary he swore that kellogg was his bookkeeper kellogg swore that he did keep the books tory swore that he was his bookkeeper and kept the books and yet mr bliss stood up before this jury and said to you that mr dorsey wanted you to believe or stated that he kept no books of that immense business it will not do no books but the red books i suppose were kept twenty-second point at page forty-eight eighty-three mr bliss says that in regard to one of the vale and minor routes canyon city to fort mcdermott there were large profits amounting to twenty thousand dollars a year then he says eighty thousand dollars during the four years and yet mr bliss knew at the time that expedition lasted only eleven months trying to fool the jury about sixty two thousand dollars twenty-third point on page forty eight fifteen mr bliss states that the fines on the bismarck and tongue river route during brady's administration were only thirteen thousand dollars if you look at page seven twenty seven of this record where the table is put in evidence as to the fines you will find that he deducted from the pay twenty nine thousand two hundred and twenty four dollars mr bliss made a mistake of sixteen thousand two hundred and twenty four dollars but in a case like this that is not important gentlemen you know you cannot always be accurate mr bliss is an accurate man as a rule he has been called the index of this business for the government twenty-fourth point on page forty nine eighty seven mr bliss says the one fact of the evidence of the payment of money by dorsey to brady remains the same whether the books were put out of the way by dorsey or by burdell that is the great central point as far as the books were concerned and as to that the testimony is absolutely uncontradicted 
Mr. Brady swears that Dorsey never gave him a dollar. Dorsey swears that he never had a money transaction with Brady amounting to one cent. Mr. Burdell does not pretend to swear that he knows of Mr. Dorsey having paid a dollar to Mr. Brady. He does not pretend to swear that he knows of any one of these defendants having paid one dollar to Mr. Brady. And yet Mr. Bliss will tell you the fact that Dorsey paid Brady money is uncontradicted. Mr. Bliss, I did not intend that, Colonel Ingersoll. I do not think it is capable of that interpretation. Mr. Ingersoll, well, what did you mean? Mr. Bliss, as to the statement being in the books, it is uncontradicted. Mr. Ingersoll, let me see. He now turns and says that he did not mean the money, he meant the books. The evidence is overwhelming on our side that the books did not exist. When you deny the existence of the book, I take it you deny the existence of any item in it. It is a question whether any such books ever existed, gentlemen. Burdell swore in the affidavit of June twentieth, 1881, and he swore to that affidavit three times hand-running, that no such books existed. He swore substantially the same thing on the 13th of July, 1882. He told Mr. French that no such books ever existed. He told Judge Carpenter that no such books ever existed. He stated to Bosler that no such books ever existed. And now this gentleman says the evidence is uncontradicted that Brady was charged in those books. That is a good deal worse than the other. Let us go on. Twenty-fifth point. At page 4962, Mr. Bliss says that Mr. Dorsey, according to his own statement, had brought Burdell up and led him to infamy. Did Dorsey make any such statement? Did Mr. Dorsey, gentlemen, in your presence swear that he had brought Burdell up? Did he, in your presence, swear that he had led him to infamy? Did he, in your presence, swear that he had done anything of the kind? I have got the exact words. Who, according to his own statement, he, Dorsey, had brought up, had led to infamy, and who, according to his own statement, had stated that McVeigh had told a lie. This ends chapter 4, part 14 of 24.